April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am delighted that we are joined on this special weekend conversation with Wajahat Ali, noted author, podcaster, who is co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast, uh, regular commentator on all media, uh, and a man who thus far, despite everything that the world has thrown at us all, has not lost his sense of humor. I am amazed by this extreme close-up of your face that I'm seeing uh, on this Riverside podcast. No, 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 no. Don't tilt it back. You got to stick with it. Uh, now I got a medium. Well, I there you go. There you go. I, I the the reality is that a moment ago my wife was pulling together some things behind me, and so I was jamming myself up because we were doing podcasts. And I didn't want her to, um, you know, f- uh, feel intruded upon. In any event, uh, here's here's what I'd like to do. We had a conversation in yesterday's podcast, the one we we taped uh, yesterday with E.J. Dion and Jen Rubin of the Washington Post. Um, and I, I asked them a question or a series of questions um, that I know you've given a lot of thought to, and so I thought I would continue this as part two. And that's why. Why are we where we are in the United States right now? Why are institutions like the courts, like the Congress, so broken? Why is society so divided? Um, uh, why does it seem that red states are heading, uh, or at least uh, red state leaders are trying to lead them uh, in the direction to make the differences uh, deeper? Um, I, I, it came out of a conversation. We had a group, a, a roundtable with a group of uh, sort of under 30s. And we said, what's the issue that you're most interested in? And their response is, how did things get so fucked up? And I, you know, I just I, I just think periodically we ought to stop and say, why? So what's what you know, what's your answer? I have two answers, and they're pretty simple, uh, and also very complex. White supremacy and greed. The reason why America is in the position where it's at right now is because for so long. The, the, 
the darkness within our soul embedded within our flesh and our bones and our tissue was white supremacy. It went unconfronted, unacknowledged. It was like a poison that metastasized uh, over everything. And we tolerated it. We indulged it. We rationalized it. Uh, we emboldened it. And then you tie it to capitalism and greed, where we're perfectly fine in the past 40 years <clears throat> with the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. And this is where the blame goes to Reaganomics. And I know a lot of conservatives love themselves wrong Reagan, but just just terrible policies. We're both gray beards and old heads. Uh, this is like, you know, a 40-year project. And when you combine white supremacy with greed, it's a very potent toxic combination that has poisoned so many of our institutions and created what I call now a radicalized and weaponized movement that is cosplaying as a political party, the GOP. And then how does a country sustain a beleaguered democracy when one of the two major political parties, which represents a major conservative movement, has been taken over? I wouldn't say hijacked. It's been, it's, uh, been taken over by this increasingly radicalized force that is now telling us openly to our face, we, uh, we don't care about democracy. We want power by any means necessary. And so for the rest of us, and I remember when you're talking about EJ and, and, and Jen, coincidentally, we were all on a panel right after Trump got elected in D.C., where we were talking about, you know, and I think all of us were deeply worried about the threats to our democracy. I think I was a little bit more vocal about it because being a person of color and being a Muslim, we have been the ones trying to ring the alarm. And I always joke that we're, it's like we're Paul Revere, but we weren't white. So instead of America saying, oh, Thanks, Paul Revere, for warning about the British. They're like, ah, it's brown and Muslim. Paul Revere, shoot him. <laughs> right? I remember you and I have talked about it on your show before, where I believe it was the first term of Trump. We were at Aspen, where I first met you, and you were doing a panel. And people could see this panel. It's on YouTube. It was you moderating it with Julia Yaffe, who has always been very present and on point and warning people, even though they didn't pay attention to her. And Petraeus, who was pathetic on the panel, gunning for a job. And another person who was gunning for a job. And you and Julia, both being of the Jews, uh, and you have to say the Jews in quotation marks, uh, and students of history, were trying to warn the Aspen audience that was kind of lulled into a sense of complacency that, oh, everything will be fine. And you're like, what are you talking about? And you were expecting some pushback. You were expecting some consensus from Petraeus. And Petraeus was like, well, let me do a job audition right now. And so... Here we are, David, the people who tried to warn and the people who are on the, the wrong and the people who have tried to warn, if you've seen it, and I'll end on this, Jews, black people, refugees, immigrants, because we know American history. We have had to fight for a country that doesn't fight for us. We've had to fight for equality and rights. And we've been the ones saying, yo, 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 America, you can't achieve the American dream without getting rid of white supremacy. And so many people were like, eh, we live in a post-racial Obama society. We love the Beyonce. We love none. And this is what happens when a poison goes unacknowledged. It corrupts everything. And now we're dealing with what I call the death rattle of white supremacy that has turned into a global death march. Well, setting aside the global death march for a moment, and but let's, let's explore this white supremacy thing a little bit. Because I really think, I mean, we've always had white supremacy. And for, you know, 240 years of U.S. history, it has been white supremacy founded on the power of whites, particularly white males, 
and their hold on our institutions. But I think we're in a different period now. I think it's white supremacy founded on uh, the anxiety of these groups as they recognize that it is inevitable that their influence within our society declines because because of immigration, because of demographic shifts. Um, And what makes me worried about that is that over the course of the next 20 years, as we get closer to 2043, which is the date that the Census Department says that we will become a minority-majority country, country where uh, the the former white majority is in the minority, um, they're going to become more and more cognizant of the changes and more and more desperate to hold on to things. And, you know, we see this in examples like in Florida and Texas and elsewhere where they say, no, we're not going to teach about race. In fact, there's this bizarre thing, which I find, I mean, it's, it's bizarre enough that they're against being woke, which is like against being kind, but they're now taking this stance against what they've characterized as DEI programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're against including people in our society. Um, it's insane, but I just think it's going to get insaner. You're absolutely right. Look, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head that this is due to cultural anxiety, racial anxiety. We heard this nonsense of economic anxiety since 2016, and people of color said, listen, folks, we know something about U.S. history. It ain't economic anxiety, right? Every single study that has been done has repeatedly showed that the predominant motivator to vote for Trump, not the exclusive, but the primary motivator was something called cultural anxiety, specifically what you said, this fear that we're being replaced. The replacement theory, which, as you know, David, comes from the swamps of the KKK, white supremacists and Nazis and posits that the Jews are using people of color to replace and weaken Western civilization, has been mainstreamed now openly by Trump and the Republican Party to the point where a third of Americans, folks, believe in this conspiracy theory that has come from the swamps of the Nazis and the KKK, and posits that there is this mass conspiracy to weaken and replace Western civilization, which is, let's just be honest, quote-unquote white civilization. This week, we're recording this on Thursday, I believe Monday, uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida banned the teaching of diversity, equity, and inclusivity in all public education, uh, pub, uh, public uh, universities in Florida, right? They have taken this wokeness to, to the point of self-immolation. And white supremacy is ultimately always self-destructive, right? As we're recording this about 32 minutes ago, I don't know if you saw this breaking news, is that Disney is now halting its plans to create a $1 billion complex in Lake Nona, Orlando, where 2,000 employees were supposed to work. White supremacy has always been self-destructive, right? Uh, there was this great book written by Jonathan Metzl called Dying of Whiteness, where he went around you know, Tennessee uh, and, uh, and Missouri and these other places, did the research and showed that these voters, you know, when we sit there and say, why are you voting against your own, own interests? And he found out that they're actually voting for white supremacy, even if it kills them, like literally. Like he interviews people who are like, I won't do Obamacare, but he goes, it'll save your life. I'd rather die. And that person died. The loosening of gun laws. What has that led to, especially in in Tennessee and Missouri? Increase in violence and suicides that are harming who? White men. 
literally the life expectancy is going down, David. But what I've said is that white supremacy is such a dangerous, toxic myth that it posits the following. We will let you, Jew, David, and Muslim, Wajahat, stay in America as long as you know your place. And you should be grateful that we, we let you stay in our home. But always remember who's the master of this house. And meanwhile, Gen Z and millennials and other generations are like, no, 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 we want to be co-equal tenants. And I've always said, and I said this in 2016, and people laughed at me, I said, you all aren't paying attention to what's going to happen with Trumpism and MAGA. And the analogy I gave, which I still stand by, is the fall. If they cannot control the house, instead of renting the house, they will burn down the village. They'll burn down everything, David. And that's what we're seeing now. You're literally seeing people, in addition to uh, disinformation, which is accelerating it, it's like the accelerant to the fire, and the fact that these institutions, I think thanks to greed and corruption, have oftentimes not represented, right, the majority. They, they've represented themselves and those who are wealthy. So now you have this Gen Z that and the Gen Alphas, who you've been talking to, the under 30, they're like, you're expecting me to fight for democracy. What has democracy done for me lately? You expect me to believe in capitalism. What has capitalism done for me lately? You expect me to go to school and get a good degree. I can't even afford college. And we sit there as old timers and we're like, you kids, always whining and complaining. But then you put yourself in their shoes and you're like, yeah, you got a point. <laughs> like we, we gave you rotten goods and we're selling it as fresh fruit. Yeah. And I, I just want to add here that diversity and equity and inclusion also refers to the majority population in this country which is women, and that part of the, the, the agenda of the right in the United States is to try to capture women again in the shackles of women's roles from the 50s, and I, I'm not sure I mean the 1950s, it may be that I mean the 1850s or the 1450s, where they're denied autonomy over their body, where uh, uh, you know, there is a big movement afoot to say people should return to traditional marital roles with a subservient woman in, the, in, in, in them. Uh, and part of what terrifies this white Christian male group is that women are gaining power. And that's, you know, in, in some respects, their antipathy is more heated towards women uh, than 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 these other groups, and you know, I mean, we can talk about Hillary Clinton, or we can talk about Kamala Harris, or other people who have been unfairly um, targeted. They were more comfortable having a black man as president than they were having a white woman. I mean, you you make a very interesting point, and oftentimes it gets lost when we talk about extremist movements and the path towards radicalization. Uh, the DNA oftentimes of these extremist movements, whether it's the KKK or white nationalists or even ISIS, is this desire to put women back in their place, this narrative of a natural hierarchy in which men are on top. And feminism to them is the weakening and replacing of the man, the virility of the man. They're deeply threatened, deeply threatened by women being empowered. And we just saw an example uh, two weeks ago in Dallas, uh, David, that latest mass shooter who got radicalized online with the the swastika tattoo for Elon Musk, who th thinks this man isn't a white nationalist. Uh, you know, I would say maybe the swastika tattoo on his chest and the SS lightning bolts on his arm is a dead giveaway. But I digress. 
what is underreported? Oh, you don't understand the conspiracy theories because they say they those were fresh tattoos. Oh, and therefore they were just done by the FBI or whomever to create the illusion he was a white supremacist when actually he was, you know, an immigrant uh, killing other immigrants. Oh, yes, because Latinos and black people have never uh, caped for white supremacy. My bad. Oh, look, Enrico Tario of Proud Boys. But I digress. Uh, uh, if you look at his online posts, anti-Asian, neo-Nazi. But what people aren't focusing on is he started off, David, with the incel community. His pathway began with this loathing and hatred towards women. And then he went down the rabbit hole. It's like that Venn diagram, which is a full circle, right? All these communities are kind of in it. But this loathing of women, this is very key for people who are listening, it is like this it is a central connecting node of all extremist groups, right? Women need to know their place. Women's place is subordinate to the man. Women are emasculating men. And a woman's greatest uh, glory uh, is that she will be the mother and she will carry the seeds of the future princess and the redeemers of our movement. That is why there is this kind of uh, when you look at the radical, radicalization efforts and also the recruitment, the recruitment is of young men in colleges. And they oftentimes recruit them by saying, look at these women who are emasculating you, who are not allowing you be to, to be a real man. Come join our side. That's kind of how you get an entry point into the alt-right. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize here for the listeners, I'm interested in your view on this, of course, that that is why the targeting of Kamala Harris has been what it has been. Mm. And you already have Nikki Haley and some of the other candidates who are supposedly the un-Trumps mm. going, well, you see Joe Biden's old, and if he dies in office, you're electing Kamala Harris president of the United States. That's right. And Kamala Harris is black, and she's Asian, and she's a woman, and she is everything that terrifies them. That's and right. that is why she has been criticized, in my view, deeply unfairly. She, I believe, and I'm a historian of these things, that she's done a, a first-class role as vice president, but also throughout her career, um, because she, more than any other prominent American politician in the recent past, represents their fears. And you just have to look at Ilhan Omar, who I always said is the trifecta, right? A black Muslim woman. Actually, and she's a fourth strike against her, uh, formerly a refugee. And they can use her, and they do use her as the embodiment of all their fears. They can project anything and everything onto Ilhan Omar. Look at Ilhan Omar. Look at the fact that she's in Congress. Look at her. Anything you want, you can say against Ilhan Omar, and, it, and it, it's kosher. Kamala Harris, very similar. Uh, with Barack Obama, as you said, he was the manifestation of white fears. How can a black man the son of a Muslim immigrant with a black family, with a black wife with toned arms who showed us off her toned black arms, ascend to the White House. How did we allow this to happen? How did this black family replace all their white families ascend and ascend to the White House? It was really this this baptism by fire uh, that that kind of spurred this this recent resurgence of uh, a, a white nationalist movement that has always been in America, right? But with Kamala, like you said. She has ovaries, David. We could tolerate the dude with the balls, but this woman now, this uppity black woman telling us what we should do, that will not stand. And I agree with you. 
is that even if you're critical of Kamala and her past, she has been given such an unfair slagging by even like the usual deferential uh, Washington reporters, right? Just this, the, the, the type of like ridicule and mockery and, and, and lack of uh, respect is because she's a black woman, because she's a black Asian woman. And so we're like two and a half years into the presidency. And I always kind of joke with Danielle, who's my co-host of Democracy-ish, uh, like Kamala Harris should be on a milk cart. Like, wh- where is she? And, and, and also my fear is, David, that some of the establishment pundits and Joe Biden like, oh, Kamala's going to scare the whites. Let's keep her in the back. And I always say, listen, without black folks and brown folks, Joe Biden won't have won the election. Like, you got to put her front and center. You have to rally around her, folks. I don't even care if you like her or not. Like, look at what friggin' Republicans are doing with Jorge Santos, the third, the first man on the moon, uh, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Can you please rally around your, your vice president, prop her up? Uh, but again, going back full circle to white supremacy, because they're so terrified of Kamala not being mainstream enough, allegedly, to connect with the white voter in the Rust Belt, who's probably left the Democratic Party and will never come back. We have seen a marginalization of the first black female vice president in America. And it's precisely due to her blackness and the fact that she has ovaries. Yeah, I I, I agree. I I do think there is a change afoot in this administration. We saw it when the president did his re- uh, his announcement that he was running for election again, and she played a very big role in that announcement. And I think her role is expanding. And, you know, just today there's a, a, a briefing at the White House that was led by her on the debt crisis. And she is playing a bigger role um, in foreign policy. She's playing a bigger role, particularly on domestic issues in which she is in a special position to speak, like women's issues. Uh, issues pertaining to minorities and issues pertaining to guns. Um, and, you know, by the way, I, I think we need to be equal opportunity critics here. There are plenty of people um, uh, uh, on, on the left as well who are misogynistic. We saw the the Bernie bros going after Hillary, and there have been plenty of people going, oh, you know, Kamala Harris, she's she's too centrist. She put too many people in jail. She did all this other kind of stuff. And I think at this point in our country's history, 245 years or whatever it is into our country's history, uh, in which the majority population has never been represented by a president or in the White House until Kamala Harris, um, I think it would be a good idea for all these people to shut the fuck up. You know, Kamala Harris is um, a, a trailblazer. Uh, who deserves awesome amounts of credit. You don't just get elected twice as district attorney in San Francisco, twice as state attorney general in California, twice to the United States Senate, and play a difference in the 2020 elections, which was significant, um, uh, uh, you know, by being, you know, cheerful or having a nice laugh. And, and, uh, you know, it, but it, it it encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about here. I want to say this is where Kamala has the misstep because because of the misogyny, because of the double standards, the triple standards that are at play. And you saw Hillary Clinton then, uh, in hindsight, apologize for it, right? She, because it's so unfair for women, because we, we're so ruthless, right? They have to appear to be motherly, but not too motherly, warm, but also tough. Don't be too tough. Don't be too warm. If you're too warm, you're soft. If you're too tough, you're shrill, 
right? And so you see them then like trying to calculate and posture and be something they're not and they lose their authentic self because what happened with Hillary and, and if you talked to a lot of people who knew Hillary, what they said was Hillary Clinton. They're like, if you only knew her like we knew her, if you only knew the wry sense of humor, if you only knew how she could be like cutting and, like, and, and funny. And I said, it's not enough for you to know. She has to show that. And so with Kamala, I feel like, and this is where I've been, you know, we've been saying this and I, uh, who knows who's listening to this, but I would recommend her just go all in, be your authentic self, lean in the, you're a daughter of immigrants, lean in, you're a black woman. Don't try to appease and win over everyone, right? Like be the type of person that you were that allowed you to be so successful. People will respond to that authenticity. The people who hate you will hate you, but they'll say, oh, she's real. And especially now, as we have seen, and as I have said, and Danielle has said on our podcast that abortion rights and defense of democracy will be kitchen table issues. And lo and behold, look at the midterms, kitchen table issues. You have a female vice president, David. You, you want to rally women? I'd use Kamala Harris. You want to rally around gun violence, which has now become a top five issue, especially for Gen Z, because they don't want to get shot and killed while going to school. Rally around Kamala Harris. You want to speak out against white nationalism? Got, get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to, to, to team up like an 80s buddies action movie, right? Like a white guy and a, and a black woman. It's the best messengers. I feel like they have to unleash her. They should unleash her. And someone should just be like, Kamala, be yourself. Just be yourself. No need to dance and laugh and giggle at everything. These are serious times. Kick ass when you need to kick ass. And, you know, make videos of eating a dosa when you want to eat a dosa. And I feel like this is where she can learn from the mistakes that Hillary made as a result of the intensely misogynistic climate that we live in in America. Yeah. Also, you know, the next election, democracy is on the ballot. Absolutely. And uh, I think, you know, all people who are concerned about democracy you know, it's the same reason I give a lot of people to sort of chill it on the, you know, is Joe Biden too old? Like mm. Joe Biden's the candidate. Yeah, who gives a shit? Uh, he's a candidate. And, and and he's the one who's for democracy. And whoever the other one is, is actually going to be the one who's against democracy. And he's not a fried chicken. That 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 Donald Trump eats uh, steak. I've never seen him on a bike. Uh, I've never seen him run. And at least Biden can run, jog, and be on a bike, folks. And he eats a salad. Yeah, no, well, absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, we we both talked about this in other set settings. Uh, with with the couple of minutes we have left, let me switch this conversation only slightly. Um, uh, you are a father. You are well known uh, uh, for being a wonderful father and caring about your kids. Um, uh, you take this to certain extremes. The whole building these complex Legos and then posting pictures of them on on Twitter is, is painfully nerdy. But on the other hand, uh, this is a sign of deep love for your kids. They're going out into this. It is a very real prospect that your kids could start to really, they're young, but they could start to really become conscious of the world over the course of the next five years in a Trumpist America. How do, how do, you, how do you feel about it in the context of your kids? How do you prepare them for it? Yeah, I mean, we've been nervous about this for several years um, to the point where I don't know if I shared this on your podcast before, but it was like seven years ago where I was, you know, we were just hanging out with fellow parents who were about to become parents at the time. And it was the first time that all of us who were born and raised in America and this particular group was, you know, children of immigrants. Uh, one expectant mother said, 
you know, I want to, I should get an American name for my child just so he, he could be safe. What's a good safe name? And I paused the conversation. I'm like, we're policing our unborn children's name just to give them protection. And you're a father, David. So you know how it is for parents. We're all about protecting our kids. I'm like, this is not normal. And so that's the climate that we're in, that even though I was born and raised in this country, and there were challenges, and yes, there have been advances, and yes, we have elected officials now, and yes, we have representation, it's the first time where you can be openly racist, bigoted, and Islamophobic, and you don't have to apologize, David. You'll get elected to office. Like, literally, one of the two political parties just relishes this. And that has created a climate of fear, where in my mosque, my local mosque, there never used to be a guy, a security guard with a handgun. Never. Now I go to Friday prayers. There's this big beefy guy with a friggin' Glock attached to his waist. Uh, and I sit there and I, it always makes me nervous. And I talk to Jews in synagogues and they're like, yep, we never had that until the last four years, but now we need that. So it's, it's, it's a climate of uncertainty, a climate in where my kid, based on the virtue of their religion or their skin color, might be bullied. And that's why I fight and say what I say. It's for not me. I've got, had a good life, but for my future kids' generation. And for my kids, I refuse to give them the inheritance that they'll be a good victim, that they will suffer well. F that. So instead, what my, my wife and I, what we try to do is instill in them immense confidence, pride without arrogance, and an understanding that you are brown skin and Muslim and be proud of it. But at the same time, you're living is this in this multicultural village where our neighbors are Ethiopians and the people across from us are white Christians. Uh, you're not better than anyone, but at the same time, don't be ashamed of who you are. And the reason why that's so important and, and with the limited time that we have is when I was growing up, the lack of representation, the lack of stories, the lack of heroes who look like us, it made many of us hate ourselves, David. Not me, but many of us hate the color of our skin, the shape of our eyes, the texture of our hair. It makes you happy and content simply being a sidekick. And with my kids, I'm like, F that. We work too hard. You get to be the co-protagonist of the narrative. And you get to flex. But at the same time, don't be like these chauvinists. And don't be so hateful. Always have a big tent. And always have a big table. And invite your friends to enjoy the meal. That's the only way forward. And that's what we try to model in our behavior. I hope you're successful. I really do. Uh, I'm sure you will be. Um, you are certainly a, a great advocate of these things. And I, you know, I think, you know, as some my kids are older than your kids, but the secret ingredient, I think, is to embrace the progressive values we talk about, That's right. educate them, understand history, mm. understand context, embrace one another, mm. you know, embrace diversity, see it as a source of strength. But also embrace activism. I think your point about right. not being victims is absolutely crucial as a son of somebody who fled the Nazis in December of 1939 and mm. who, you know, 40 members of his family were killed by the Nazis. Um, fighting back is the only option. Yep. Um, uh, passivity uh, in the face of this kind of hate uh, has always been a formula for disaster in the world. Um, that's why you're such an important voice. It's why I'm so glad you have joined us here again. I hope you will do so again in the future. I hope people will listen to the Democracy-ish podcast. Do you have another book coming soon? I got to write one, man. I got to write it in the summer. So <laughs> I've been so busy traveling and making Lego sets. Uh, but June and July is finally a little bit free. So hopefully I can be inspired to sit down and write a, a premise for something. But that's the hope. I hope you will because your books are great. Um, 
I mean, really, really great. I encourage people to turn to them. As thank well. you. So thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, join us again as we now, you know, have, I don't know, God knows how many podcasts a week we're doing, but, you know, it's multiple ones a day. So, you know, come back to the DSR Network, listen to the other podcasts, uh, support us if you can by becoming a member. And uh, we'll be back again soon with more brilliant and uh, fascinating people like Watch. Uh, Bye-bye for now.